Just waiting for the go at its live to come up. It's taking its time, I see. All right, welcome to tonight's Bible study. Um, tonight's kind of a part, it's a, not kind of, it's a part two of the lesson we had last week. It's the coming one world religion. And this is, again, like I said last week, this is one of the studies that I have to brush up on from time to time. It's probably the topic that I cover the least, although, you know, a discussion that we were having before we started recording, and it's been coming up a lot for me lately, um, with the Palestinian movement and uh, the protests going on, um, it's probably a good idea to kind of rehash some of this one world religion, because we're going to end up there at some point, and uh, there's scripture to back it up, but really, I, I want to alert your attention. Um, our country has started attacking some of the Houthi rebel sites in Yemen, and they are heavily backed by Iran. It's happening as we speak. So we're going to touch on that as soon as we finish this lesson. It'll be a big part of tonight's discussion, and I'll try to bring everything current to that moment as soon as the uh, lesson ends. So let me get things ready to go. Okay. And we'll see you all on the other side. Our subject for today, the coming... Our subject for today, the coming one world religion, when all religions become one. The prophecy is Revelation chapter 13, verse number 8. And all that dwell upon the earth shall worship him whose names are not written in the book of life of the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. So all will worship the Antichrist and his one world religious system except those whose names are in the Lamb's book of life. Now the Bible teaches us that there's a penalty for all of those people that in fact do end up conforming to this one world religious system. Revelation 13, 15 tells us, and he, speaking of the false prophet, had power to give life unto the image of the beast, the image of the Antichrist, that the image of the beast should both speak and cause that as many as would not worship the image of the beast should be killed. And then in Revelation 13, 16, it tells us another penalty. And he causeth all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and bond, to receive a mark in their right hand or in their foreheads, and that no man might buy or sell, save he that had the mark or the name of the beast or the number of his name. So those who will not conform to the one world government and the one world religion, those who will not worship, will be killed or they will be placed under economic boycott. The prevailing theory today is that there are two root causes of war on earth. Conflicts between nations, conflicts between religions. The perceived solution is, well, let's just abolish nations and let's move into a new era of global governance. And furthermore, let's get rid of the conflict among religions by bringing about some form of religious agreement on earth. So one world government, one world religion, we will 
have banished war from the earth and we can then have peace. Now, in a previous lesson, we studied the prophecies about the coming one world government. It is going to happen. It's happening now. In this lesson today, we will learn what the prophecies actually say about the coming one world religion. To understand how all this will unfold, Mikhail Gorbachev wrote a book in 1987 called Perestroika. And he discussed in this book the dangers of religious exclusiveness. On page 231, he put together an all-embracing system of international security. He sent a copy to every head of state at the time. Item number four, double I, of this list was the extirpation of genocide, apartheid, and religious exclusiveness. To extirpate means to kill off. And so he would say we must kill off, we must abolish all genocide, apartheid, and religious exclusiveness. Now it's interesting that he places religious exclusiveness in the same category as genocide. We know that genocide is causing physical harm or mental harm to a minority, whether it's a racial minority, a religious minority, a sexual minority, whatever it may be, but to cause physical harm, and this is the kicker, or mental harm. We're reaching the time in society now where you can perform a hate crime without ever hurting anyone. All you have to do is say the wrong things. Well, not only is there genocide mentally, but there is also harm against a person for religious exclusiveness. You're considered religiously exclusive if you believe that your religion is the only way and that people must be saved through a certain religion or else they're not saved at all. Uh, For example, Jesus Christ said, except you believe that I am the Messiah, you will die in your sins. Also in the scriptures, it tells us, neither is there salvation in any other, for there's none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Now, these types of beliefs would be considered extreme religious exclusiveness because Jesus was religiously exclusive. He said, I am the door to the sheepfold. Anybody that climbs up any other way, the same is a thief and a robber. However, Mikhail Gorbachev said, we must abolish all religious exclusiveness and you need to embrace my religion is valid. I need to embrace your religion is valid, whether we believe it or not, because nobody knows the truth anyway. So my truth may not be your truth. That's the concept that's afloat today among the intelligentsia of our world. And it's filtering down into the general populace. So what's the perceived solution for religious exclusiveness? It's religious inclusiveness or interfaithism. That means your religion, if it's good for you, I respect it and I don't argue against it. You respect my religion. Everybody everybody respects everyone. We validate everyone and thus we remove religious conflict. Now this term interfaithism is somewhat of a new term among us. However, many of our huge uh, political leaders today actually embrace interfaithism. Uh, One of those is President George W. Bush. I have a clip for you showing his opinion about the religions of the world. Listen to it. Let me ask some questions about faith, which is a tough subject to talk about. Do we all worship the same God, Christian and Muslim? I think we do. Does. We have different routes of getting to the Almighty. 
Does Bin Laden, does uh, Abu Musab al-Zarqawi pray to the same God that you and I do? Uh, I think they pray to a false God, otherwise they wouldn't be killing uh, innocent lives like they have been. Do Christians and non-Christians, do Muslims go to heaven in your mind? Yes, they do. We have different routes of getting there. But I, will, I want you to understand, I want your listeners to understand, I don't get to decide who goes to heaven. I, I, the Almighty God decides who goes to heaven. So there you have it. President Bush says Muslims, Jews, Christians all pray to the same God. They're all going to heaven. That's what we call religious inclusiveness or interfaithism. Now, our present president, Barack Obama, also believes in interfaithism and pushes it at every opportunity. At his inauguration, there were three inaugural services. At the first service, he had Muslims and Jews to pray. At the second inaugural service, he had a homosexual Episcopalian, Bishop Gene Robinson, to pray. At the third service, he had evangelical Rick Warren to pray. So President Obama was sending a very powerful message. All of these religions are legitimate and, I believe, in interfaithism. Now, before we really understand interfaithism, however, let's look at the forerunner of interfaithism, ecumenism. Ecumenism is simply the movement promoting unity among Christian churches or denominations. The effort to unify all Christians and all Christian denominations began in earnest with Vatican Council II in 1962. From that council called by Pope John XXIII, the Roman Catholic Church issued the call for all of her departed daughters, speaking of the Protestants, to come home. The compelling argument behind the call to the Protestants was the words of Jesus himself, that they all may be one, as thou, Father, art in me and I in thee, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that thou hast sent me. That's John 17, 21. Another passage says, By this shall all men know you are my disciples, because you have loved one for another. The Catholic Church said, look, how can we ever win the world when we as Christians are so divided? And there was a powerful appeal to this, because after all, who wouldn't want all Christians to be together? However, there was a problem. The fatal flaw of the ecumenical movement from the outset was that this call to unity was based on compromise rather than on the truth. Long-held biblical truths that our religious forefathers had worked and died for were cast aside like so much obsolete baggage. Now, if the call for unity had been based on truth, all of the religious people come together and let's deal with the cardinal doctrines of the Christian faith and let's pray and let's study until we believe this is correct. This is what the Bible teaches. And then we all agree together. Then we could have had a true Christian rebirth. But it wasn't based on truth. It was based on compromise. Doctrine became almost a dirty word. But this was a bad thing because the apostle Paul wrote to Timothy and said, take heed unto thyself and unto the doctrine. 
continue in them. For in doing this, thou shalt save thyself and them that hear thee. So Paul taught Timothy that doctrine was essential for salvation. But in the ecumenical movement, doctrine became the blockade to unity. Well, it worked nonetheless, because from 1962 until 1994, the ecumenical movement advanced rapidly. By 1994, Catholics, Lutherans, Methodists, Baptists, and even Jews began to exchange churches, synagogues, uh, pulpits. It was an amazing thing to watch this happen as it had never happened before. Well, finally in 1994, it was sort of the culmination of all the ecumenical efforts. On March the 29th of 1994, it was announced that an agreement had been signed between leading evangelicals such as Pat Robertson, Charles Colson, and Bill Bright, the founder of Crusade for Christ, and certain theologians in the Roman Catholic Church. This statement called Catholics and Protestants together basically said that since any person confessing faith in Jesus Christ is saved that Catholics, Protestants, and Evangelicals should no longer target each other's members for conversion. This agreement obviously presupposes that long-held doctrinal differences are no longer important and are merely divisive hindrances to Christian unity. Now, this statement announcing the signing of this document appeared in an article in the Indianapolis Star on March the 30th of 1994. It was titled, Catholics, Evangelicals, Affirm Ties That Bind. Well, about two and a half months later, in June of 1994, the Southern Baptist National Convention, America's largest Protestant denomination, voted overwhelmingly to endorse a declaration of unity with Catholics despite theological differences. The report in the June 17, 1994 edition of the Indianapolis Star said, in a major step toward ecumenism, the Southern Baptist said, born-again believers may be found in all Christian denominations and endorsed Baptist-Catholic dialogue. The title of the article, Southern Baptist Embraced Catholics, the largest Protestant denomination. Well, now, on 1999, the capstone of the ecumenical movement was put in place. Lutherans and Catholics signed a joint declaration on justification by faith. The announcement read, It is a blockbuster agreement, a crowning achievement of the ecumenical dialogue spawned by Vatican II. And it almost didn't happen. Despite his public image as an ecumenical roadblock, the man credited by sources on both sides with saving this document, this declaration, is none other than Cardinal Joseph Ratzinger, the head of the Vatican's Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith. Well, that's the man who is now Pope Benedict XVI. The signing took place on October 31, the anniversary of Martin Luther's nailing of his 95 theses to the door of the Wittenberg Cathedral, which is credited with unleashing the Protestant Reformation. So here we are on the anniversary. The Protestant Reformation was over justification by faith. Martin Luther made the phrase famous, the just shall live by faith. 
Well, now then, Lutherans and Catholics have put together a theological paper agreeing on what that means. So the very thing that caused the Reformation now is put aside and agreed upon. So why shouldn't the churches reunite? That's what happened on October the 31st of 1999. So the issue that sparked the Reformation had been resolved. Most Christian denominations considered other Christian groups as saved. Ecumenism was considered by most to be an accomplished fact. So now the focus shifts from ecumenism to interfaithism. Now let's go back to the first interfaith meeting. 1893, the first parliament of the world's religions was held in Chicago. Its stated goal was to cultivate harmony among the world's religions and spiritual communities and foster their engagement with the world and its guiding institutions in order to achieve a just, peaceful, and sustainable world. Well, actually, it was way ahead of its time because not much else happened on interfaithism uh, for 80 years or so. But in 1985, Pope John Paul II made the stunning announcement that he believed Muslims and Christians worship the same God. It was August of 1985 when Pope John Paul II visited Morocco at the invitation of King Hassan II. He became the first pope to visit an officially Islamic country at the invitation of its religious leader. There at a historic meeting with thousands of Muslim youth in Casablanca Stadium, he emphasized that we believe in the same God, the one God, the living God. Now think about this. Muslims and Christians believe in the same God. Christians believe Jesus is God. Muslims do not believe Jesus is God. Christians believe that Jesus died on the cross, and that's the only plan of redemption is through the blood of Calvary. Muslims deny that Jesus even died on the cross. So now we're taking huge leaps of blind faith here. Now this continued because in 1986, Pope John Paul II convened the World Day of Prayer. Pope John Paul was convinced that prayer could bring believers together, an idea that inspired the 1986 World Day of Prayer for Peace in Assisi, Italy. That unprecedented gathering at the Pope's invitation drew leaders of Jews, Buddhists, Shintoists, Muslims, Zoroastrians, Hindus, Unitarians, traditional African and Native American religions, and many others. Together under the roof of the Basilica of St. Francis, they all prayed side by side with Catholic, Orthodox, and Protestant leaders for world peace. Now there's something feeling good about that. Uh, all of us, I think, would say, oh, isn't that a nice thing that everybody would drop their barriers and just get together and pray to whatever God uh, they happen to believe in. Before we decide this is good, though, I do want to ask you this question. Can you imagine the prophet Elijah in the Old Testament meeting for an uh, uh, interfaith prayer service with the prophets of Baal and the prophets of the groves? I don't think so. We know he wouldn't do it if you know your Bible. So the question has to come to us. Was Elijah wrong then? Or 
are we wrong now? Now we need to ask ourselves that question because mankind has many times gone astray. Let's continue on. Finally in 1993, at the Parliament of the World's Religions held in Chicago on the 100th anniversary of the first Parliament of the World's Religions uh, in Chicago as well, Catholics, Protestants, Hindus, Jews, Muslims, Sikhs, Astorians, Wiccans, Wiccans are witches by the way, indigenous people and many others were in attendance. The 1993 Parliament of the World's Religions adopted a global ethic which was authored by eminent Roman Catholic theologian Hans Kuhn. A global ethic is a global belief statement. The essence of the global ethic can be captured in three quotes from the document. One, we affirm that a common set of core values is found in the teachings of the religions and that these form the basis for a global ethic that all religions can agree, agree upon. Number two, there already exist ancient guidelines for human behavior which are found in the teachings of the religions of the world and which are the condition for a sustainable world order. Sustainable world order, I recognize that phrase. So that's where we're headed, right? Number three, we must sink our narrow differences for the cause of the world community, practicing a culture of solidarity and relatedness. Sink our narrow differences, narrow differences such as, was Jesus God or was he not? Was he the Messiah or was he not? Was he crucified on the cross or was he not? Or is Allah God or is Jehovah God or is Brahma God? Narrow differences is what they said in the global ethic. We must sink those narrow differences. Why? For the cause of the world community, for the cause of the one world government. Now, this is the thinking that drives interfaithism. Then in 1994, the first new Roman Catholic catechism was published. I bought a copy because I was very interested in what it had to say about the relationship of the Catholic Church to the Muslims. On item number 841, under the church's relationship with the Muslims, it states this, and I'm quoting, the plan of salvation also includes those who acknowledge the Creator in the first place amongst whom are the Muslims. These profess to hold the faith of Abraham and together with us they adore the one merciful God, mankind's judge on the last day. So is the Catholic Catechism say the plan of salvation also includes in the first place the Muslims just because they worship, claim to worship the God of Abraham as we do? That's what it was saying another huge leap into interfaithism. Mr. Robert Mueller was an assistant secretary general to three secretary generals at the United Nations. He worked at the UN for 38 years. I was interviewing him on our radio program, Politics and Religion, and uh, he stated to me, we have brought the world together as far as we can politically. He openly advocated a one world government, but he said, we're, we're stuck. We can't go any further because to bring about a true world government, the world must be brought together spiritually. Then he said, what we need is a United Nations of religions. He said the political leaders meet every day at the United Nations. They talk together. Until today, we have such a consensus of opinion that we actually have a world community. The world community says this. The world community says that. But he said the religious leaders won't even speak to one another most of the time. We need a United Nations of religions. 
Well, I wasn't very surprised a couple of years later when I saw the announcement that an ecumenical service for political leaders and religious leaders would be held in San Francisco to celebrate the 50th anniversary of the signing of the UN Charter. It was June 26, 1995, exactly 50 years after the UN Charter was signed. This was hosted by Bishop William Swing of Grace Episcopal Church in San Francisco at the request of the UN. People attending were UN Secretary General Boutrous Boutrous Ghali, Princess Margaret of Great Britain, Archbishop Desmond Tutu of South Africa, President Lech Walesa of Poland, and many other international dignitaries. Well, after this ecumenical meeting, Bishop Swing, who was in charge, decided out of that service that he should investigate the possibility of establishing a United Religions organization or a United Nations of Religions. He traveled during 1996. He visited such people as Pope John Paul II, Bishop Desmond Tutu, Dalai Lama, Mother Teresa. And coming back from that meeting, those meetings, he reported that the reception was overwhelming to the idea. Consequently, in 1997, Reverend Swing decided to hold the first charter writing conference for the United Religions Organization. Then in 1998, he held the second charter writing conference. Finally, they had the charter finished. Now, at these conferences, there were Catholics, Protestants, Jews, Hindus, indigenous people, Wiccans. They were all there. Well, finally, he finished the charter by the year 2000. They were going to have a huge charter signing conference in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. At the meeting, I happened to be there. A call came from the United Nations. A Hindu lady was praying there. The call from the United Nations congratulated the United Religions on its accomplishment. The Hindu lady praying, uh, she sat in the lotus position on the stool and she began to pray. And after praying a while, all of a sudden she said, Om. And I heard her echo from the congregation. Om. And then she said it louder. Om. And the refrain came back louder. And before long, the whole place was oming. And I realized I was in the middle of an ecumenical prayer service. Finally, the service concluded by the Jewish blowing of the shofar. It was an amazing event. It was the, the charter signing of the United Religions Organization. We're going to continue on looking at interfaithism because what happened after the United Religions was formed in the year 2000, about three months later, in August of 2000, there was a meeting held at the United Nations called the Millennium World Peace Summit. This was the first ever religious meeting held at the United Nations. It was held one week before the Millennium Summit for the world's political leaders. Now, the concept behind this meeting was we need to bring about cooperation between the religious leaders of the world and the political leaders of the world. This meeting was sponsored by Mr. Ted Turner, who had gifted $1 billion to the United Nations. And because he put up the money, Ted Turner was the keynote speaker for the meeting. There were about a thousand religious leaders from all over the world in attendance. The goal of the World Peace Summit was to convene and to coordinate religious and spiritual leadership in an, as an interfaith ally to the United Nations in its quest for peace, global understanding, and international cooperation. 
Well, the outcome of the World Peace Summit, and remember, this is the year 2000. This is the turn of the millennium. It only comes once every 1,000 years. So expectations were very high. At this meeting, the religious leaders signed a declaration for world peace, number one, and they also established, this is probably more importantly, an International Advisory Council of Religious Leaders, a liaison between the religious leaders of the world and the political leaders of the world. The purpose was to engage religious leaders in promoting the plans of the world community or the one world government instead of working against them. The reason this is so important is because the political leaders realized the religious leaders could sabotage their efforts. The religious leaders, after all, are in pulpits looking eye to eye with their people every week. Plus, they're dedicating their babies, they're marrying their young people, they're burying their dead, they're in their homes. Their influence is so vast. Of course, this is what uh, Mr. Robert Mueller said when he said, we need a United Nations of Religions. So they established this liaison council to consult continually with the political leaders of the world in order to bring about this union between politics and religion, between the political powers of the world and the religious leaders of the world. So it was mission accomplished. They did set that up. One week later, the political leaders converged upon the United Nations for the UN Millennium Summit. Again, this was the turn of the millennium. Expectations were very high. Attendance was very high. They did several things at this meeting, but the main thing they did was to adopt what was called the Millennium Development Goals. There are eight MDGs, such as Sustainable Development global partnership, and other things. You can read about all those if you go to the UN webpage. But the real agenda for the New World Order was to set the Millennium Development Goals and then all the nations of the world would work together in concert to reach these goals. So what happened is they actually adopted a program, an agenda for the one world governmental system and built into the Millennium Development Goals was a plan for massive wealth redistribution. Well, massive wealth redistribution, as you know, is the central plank in the international platform for international socialism or communism. So now we have set the goal of an international socialist agenda, all to be administered by the United Nations and to be cooperated with by the religions of the world. Well, the interface efforts continued on, and in 2002, Pope John Paul II once again led an interfaith service at Assisi, Italy. So the concept of being sown, it is being promoted, interfaithism. Tony Blair, a very influential leader in our world that all of us are very familiar with, was the Prime Minister of Great Britain for many years. However, in 2007, he announced he would be leaving the Prime Minister's office. It also was rumored that he would convert to Catholicism. Now, he didn't do this while he was in office because the Prime Minister of Great Britain is the head of the Episcopalian or the Anglican Church. So he waited until he left office, and then within a few months, he did, in fact, convert to Catholicism. But that wasn't all of the story, because the next year, 2008, he founded a new organization called the Tony Blair Faith foundation. And he said, 
because of globalization moving us all closer together, we need a foundation that will re-educate the world so that religions can learn how to get along together in this ever closer society. He actually launched a curriculum at Yale University called Faith and Globalization, and he became a guest lecturer there. The course has since spread to other prestigious colleges as well. Now, beyond that, in 2010, realizing he needed to reach more than a few prestigious colleges, he launched a new curriculum called Face to Faith. It was a project to reach the high schoolers of our world. He entered into a partnership with Bill Clinton and his Clinton Global Initiative, and they decided to take this new curriculum and promote it to schools worldwide. Now, the plan is this. Every student will have a computer on their desk. It will be linked to a person of another religion somewhere around the world. A Christian will be linked to a Muslim or a Muslim to a Buddhist or a Buddhist to a Jew. And these young people will then discuss with one another, get to know each other, and especially emphasize their common points of agreement so that possibly we can draw closer together. Now, remember the global ethic that Mr. Hans Kuhn penned? This is part of the area with so much we agree on that we need to sink the narrow differences that keep us apart so that we can, in fact, can form a global community. The dream is one world government and one world religion. Well, here you see the culmination of the interfaith movement. Pope John Paul II, this happened actually May the 6th of 2001 at a mosque in Damascus, Syria. Pope John Paul is seen kissing the Koran. Amazing. It's almost hard to believe. Well, the latest development on interfaithism, in 2011, Pope Benedict XVI has already announced he will return to Assisi, Italy, and invite all of the religions there once again for a common prayer time. Okay, let's pause and let's assess what we're actually talking about here. Interfaithism realizes there are two major religions on the earth, Islam and Christianity. Islam claims about 1.57 billion followers, which is 23% of the world's population. Christianity claims 2.2 billion followers, which is 33% of the world's population. So you've got 1.1 billion Catholics, 1.1 billion Protestants, Together between Islam and Christianity, you have 56% of the world's population. So the interfaithists say, if we can just get cooperation between the Muslims and the Christians, if these two religions could form an alliance together, they could bring the entire world together. But now we have to ask, will interfaithism be successful? European leaders are in agreement that multiculturalism has failed. I mean, for some time in Europe especially, it's so filled with Islam that the leaders of Europe were trying to be broad-minded and magnanimous, and so they made special leeway for the Islamists. But what they found was that the Muslims did not want to integrate into French society, German society, British society. They wanted to come in and be so strong that they would change the society, the society to be like them. So recently, French President Nicolas Sarkozy 
has followed the lead of British Prime Minister David Cameron and German Chancellor Angela Merkel. Sarkozy said, it's a failure. The truth is that in all our democracies, we've been too concerned about the identity of new arrivals and not enough about the identity of the country receiving them. Merkel contends multiculturalism has totally failed in Germany. Cameron of Great Britain says it has left young British Muslims vulnerable to radicalism. So has interfaithism failed? Will it be the religion of the Antichrist and the false prophet of the end time one world government and the one world religion? Or if it's failed, what can we expect to actually happen? Well, there have been many articles written in the last few years about a possible clash of civilizations because the world of Islam is so different and so strong in its beliefs to the Western societies. Many people have said it's never going to work. Eventually, there's going to be a war, a clash. Well, the Bible happens to prophesy just such a war. It's Revelation chapter number 9, verse 13 through 16. And it states there, a war is coming. In verse 15, it says that a war is coming that will kill one-third of mankind. One-third of the human race will be wiped out in this unprecedented war. Now, I'm telling you, that's what the Bible says, and the prophecies always come to pass. World War III, according to this passage, will start from the Euphrates River. Let me point out to you that 100% of the Euphrates River is Muslim. Turkey is 99% Muslim. Syria is 92% Muslim. Iraq is 98% Muslim. So every inch of the Euphrates River is controlled by Islam. And it says in the passage in Revelation 9, 13 through 16, that this war will start from that area where we're experiencing all kinds of turmoil right now. So the war is going to be involving Islam and the United States will undoubtedly be involved because... We are the prominent force in the Middle East right now. We have troops everywhere. We have 236,000 troops stationed in the Euphrates River Basin right now. We're involved in every conflict, whether it's Iraq or Afghanistan or Pakistan, wherever you want to talk, Libya, uh, the United States ends up being involved. And also the United States has the nuclear firepower to kill one-third of mankind. What will happen as a result of this war? It appears from the prophecies that Islam will make up a large percentage of the 2.3 billion killed. Now, Islam has a population of 1.57 billion. That means a lot more than Islam has to be killed. But it appears from the prophecies that Islam will be largely eliminated in this war that is soon to come. Now, how do we know this for sure? Well, because we have two prophetic pictures of the world after World War III. We have two specific snapshots of the world during the final three and a half years, right before the Battle of Armageddon. Revelation 13 depicts two beasts in alliance together. The first beast represents the one world government of the Antichrist. And the second beast portrays the one world religion led by the false prophet. Well, the same picture as is given in Revelation 13 is also given in Revelation 17 through 18. It prophesies an alliance between a world government and a world religion. Now, 
Both of these prophecies portray the world as it will be just before Armageddon and the second coming of Jesus Christ. Now, pause just a moment to notice how much space in the book of Revelation is devoted to the coming global religious system. Apparently, it's really important for all of us who live in the end time to understand the role of this one world religion. By the way, it will not be the true religion. It will be a false religion. So it's like there's a warning come from God. Three whole chapters at least devoted to the one world religious system out of the 22 chapters of the book of Revelation. So we need to realize that. Okay, now let's look at the prophecy of the coming one world religion. First of all, a warning. Most Christians, both Protestants and Catholic will become part of this one world religion. And I hate to tell you that because I'm a Christian myself. And when I think about most Christians being involved in this one world religious system in cooperating with the Antichrist, it gives me pain. But I have to tell you the truth because this is what the Bible says is going to happen. And the prophecies are never wrong. In Revelation 17, 1 through 3, we see a very specific prophecy about the end time one world religion. Verse number 1. And there came one of the seven angels which had the seven vials and talked with me, saying unto me, Come hither, I will show unto thee the judgment of the great harlot that sitteth upon many waters, with whom the kings of the earth have committed fornication, and the inhabitants of the earth have been made drunk with the wine of her fornication. So he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness. And I saw a woman sit upon a scarlet colored beast. That's a red beast. Full of names of blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns. The first thing I want you to notice is that the, the person speaking said to John, I will show thee the judgment of the great harlot. So this is a warning that judgment is coming. Now, continuing on, let me remind you that this beast of Revelation 17 is the same seven-headed, ten-horned beast that symbolizes world government in Revelation 13. So the beast of Revelation 17 and the beast of Revelation 13 is the same beast. And let me remind you, the beast in Revelation 13 has the body of the leopard, Germany, the feet of the bear, Russia, the mouth of the lion, Great Britain, and the ten horns of the ten horn kingdom, a ten-nation alliance that will come out of the European Union. So this is very much a European-centered, one-world governmental system. That's the beast of Revelation 13. Now, in Revelation 17, we're told something we were not told in Revelation 13. The color of the beast is red. Red in the Bible is used to symbolize socialism or communism. So the world government of the Antichrist, the false prophet, will be a socialist government. And that shouldn't surprise us because most of the nations of the world today are socialistic and the ones who are not yet are moving quickly in that direction. We're hearing continually so much promotion of wealth redistribution, which is socialism, of course. And as we move further into the end time world government, we will be hearing that more and more and more. Okay, now back to Revelation 17. In that prophecy, there's a woman riding on the back of this world government beast. And in order to understand this part of the prophecy, we know a beast always symbolizes a nation along with the ruler of that nation. But in order to understand the woman, God always uses a woman to symbolize a church in Scripture. He uses a virgin for a true church. 
Uh, for example, 2 Corinthians 11.2, Paul said, For I am jealous over you with godly jealousy, for I have espoused you to one husband that they may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. Now, he also uses a woman to symbolize a backslidden church, but he doesn't use a virgin. He uses a harlot. When Israel in the Old Testament backslid, God said that she committed whoredoms. For example, Judges 2.17. And yet they would not hearken unto their judges, but they went a-whoring after other gods and bowed themselves unto them. They turned quickly out of the way which their fathers walked in, obeying the commandments of the Lord, but they did not so. So when we see this harlot, it's a prophecy of a backslidden church. In the prophecy of Revelation 17, backslidden Christianity, both Protestant and Catholic, is shown riding the world government beast of the end time. Now, this foretells once again the alliance between the world government of the Antichrist and the one world religion of the false prophet. Most Christians will follow the false prophet into the arms of the Antichrist and the one world governmental system. And that is such a bad report to give you, but that is what the Bible teaches. Now, to make sure we really understand the identity of this woman so that you can put your finger on it and know for sure, note that we look, first of all, let's look at Catholicism's role in the backslidden church of the end time. This is a woman, we can find out her identity. Revelation 17, 18 tells us, the woman which thou sawest is that great city which reigneth over the kings of the earth. So point number one, the woman is a city. It's easy. However, the Bible also tells us that the woman sits upon many waters. That's in verse number one. So what do the waters symbolize? The 15th verse of Revelation 17 tells us, the waters which thou sawest, where the horse sitteth, are peoples and multitudes and nations and tongues. So the woman is a city, and yet she presides over a vast international system of peoples, multitudes, nations, and tongues. Now, the beast has seven heads. In this prophecy, the seven heads have a special meaning. Verse number nine tells us that meaning. And here is the mind which hath wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sitteth. Now, the woman's a city, right? That's what we learned in verse number 18. So, the seven heads are seven mountains on which the city sitteth. I'd heard all my life that Rome was the city of seven hills, but I wanted to know that that was really true for myself. So I went off to the library and I opened the encyclopedia to Rome and there it was, Rome, the city of seven hills. Well, I was really shocked when I stood in Rome in 1993 and my Roman Catholic guide, he gathered all of us uh, outside the Colosseum and he proudly said, if you'll look here, you can see several of the famous seven hills of Rome. And he said, there's Avignon, there's Palatine, and he went around naming the seven hills. And I already knew this scripture, and I, my eyes are getting bigger, and I am absolutely shocked at what I am hearing. Another clue to the identity of the woman is verse number four. And the woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet color and decked with gold and precious stones and pearls, having a golden cup in her hand full of abominations and filthiness of her fornication. Now, we know there are two ruling bodies in the Roman church, the College of Cardinals and the College of Bishops. It is 
church official policy that cardinals wear red while bishops and non-cardinal archbishops wear purple. If you'd like to check that out, it's in an article, More Than You Wanted to Know About Cardinals, from the Criterion, July 1, 1988. Okay, now that's the Catholic side of the Christian prophecy. Let's now take a look at the Protestant role in the backslidden end-time church. Verse number 5, And upon her forehead, the harlot's forehead, was the name written, Mystery Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and abominations of the earth. What do you mean? You mean she's a harlot, but she also has daughters, and they also are symbolized as harlots, which means that they are backslidden churches as well? That's what it means. Now, in Vatican II, there was a statement issued. We, the Mother Church, are opening our arms for our Protestant daughters to return home. And there was so much dispute over how these Protestant churches should be addressed from the Roman Catholic perspective that there was actually a note published called Expression Sister Churches. Here's what it said, and I'm quoting. It must always be clear when the expression sister churches is used in this proper sense that the one holy Catholic and apostolic universal church is not sister, but mother of all the particular churches. A statement by Cardinal Ratzinger. That comes from item number 10, June 30, 2000, from catholicculture.org. Need I remind you that Cardinal Ratzinger is now Pope Benedict XVI, and he believes that the Roman Catholic Church is the mother church and all the Protestants are the daughters. It says it right here. You can see the quote for yourself. Okay. Now, the shocking thing about all this is the Bible teaches that backslidden Christianity will participate in the Great Tribulation. I wish this were not true. As a Christian, it would be so much easier for me to say, oh, the Muslims are going to perpetrate the Great Tribulation upon the earth. But I can't tell you that because the prophecy tells a different story and the prophecies always come to pass. I owe it to you and to myself to tell you what the Bible says. And even though sometimes you say, I can't see how we're going to get there from here, if the Bible says it, you can count on it. It is going to come to pass. Do we have any history of Christians persecuting Christians before? We certainly do. I mean, there's been examples of Protestants persecuting Catholics. In, ni- in 1563, anti-Catholicism in England flamed uh, when John uh, Fox's Book of Martyrs was published. Also, Catholics have persecuted Protestants during the Holy Roman Empire. Uh, there was no religion outside of Catholicism that was allowed. People were burned at the stake. Okay, so what do we do then? What does the Bible tell us to do if this is what's happening in Christianity today? Revelation 18.4 tells us. Here's the answer. And I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, that ye be not partakers of her sins, and that ye receive not of her plagues. We have to have a return to true biblical Christianity. How can we do this? We need to return to studying our Bibles, not necessarily our religious books, humble ourselves in daily prayer, return to the pattern set by us, for us in the book of Acts. Let's have a true end time Christian revival and let's do it together.
Thank you. I was just told I didn't have my mic on. I hadn't gone down much of a road yet. So uh, I want to reiterate that at the time, the Catholic Church doesn't have the the Pope of the Catholic Church doesn't have the power right now across the world that Scripture indicates in Revelation 13 that he's going to have that kind of power to force people to make an image to the beast and he's going to give life to the image of the beast and have it speak and cause people to worship it or they will be killed. Um, he doesn't have that kind of power now. But you can see the communist type tendencies that the Pope has and that the Catholic Church has and um, really that the uh, federal government or that the one world government has. So we're seeing that. Remember he talked about a scarlet colored beast in this lesson. And we know from the first four seals that um, the second seal, which was the red beast, um, we know that that is a symbolic of communism. And the, the beast that this woman is riding on is a scarlet-colored beast. Um, I had forgotten that he went into detail on who the, who the harlot was and the daughter harlots, but um, aside from that, um, I did have... I just want to probably just reiterate some things that he had. But, but remember, so the Catholic, the power that you see the Catholic Church or lack of power that you see from the Catholic Church right now won't be the case at that time. But we haven't even begun the final seven years yet. And the depiction of this is the last half of that final seven years. So we're going to have a war coming up that's going to kill one-third of the human race before all of that. It must happen if you look at scripture as to the timing of the sixth trumpet, it must happen prior to the Antichrist being revealed. So it'll happen then or before. We don't know now which will happen first, the war. And we're going to get to this prophecy of the war in just a little bit because it's, it's on our plate as we speak. But we're looking for what will enhance the power of what we will know as the false prophet, or right now we know as the Pope. So it may, and it probably won't be this pope, but the the chair of the pope, the 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 papal see, if you will. Whoever sits in that seat at the time of the Antichrist will be the false prophet. So um, I want to just reiterate a couple of points because it's talking about where he gets his power. And he exercises all the power of the first beast. And it's talking about the false prophet here. So it's talking about the Pope at the time. And he exerciseth all the power of the first beast before him, and he causeth the earth and them which dwell therein to worship the first beast whose deadly wound was healed. He's not talking about the Antichrist in this verse. He's talking about the one world government. And he's already doing that. And he doth, and he doeth great wonders, so that he maketh fire come down from heaven on the earth in the sight of men. Now, whether this will be an actual demonic miracle or whether it will be an AI-generated something, but it says in the sight of men, so apparently he will pull that off. I have an idea as to when I think that will happen, but there's no scripture for it. And he deceiveth them that dwell on the earth by the means of those miracles which he had power to do, in the sight of the beast, saying to them that dwell on the earth, that they should make an image to the beast, which had the wound by a sword and did live. 
So he's going to have the power at that time to do that. Now here's the one thing that, that I really wanted to, um, that really caught my attention just a little bit ago. Because it's talking about in verse um, 12, verse 12, and he exerciseth all the power of the first beast. Let's jump back a few verses because it talks about that power and it's talking about the one world government in this instance. And in the first couple, of, first couple of verses of Revelation 13, it tells us that it's this combo beast of um, mouth of the lion, feet of the bear, ten horns of the ten horn kingdom. But then it says, and they worshiped, worshiped the dragon which gave power unto the beast. The dragon is Satan, the old Satan and serpent. The old serpent, Satan himself. And they worship the beast, saying, Who is like unto the beast? Who is able to make war with him? So the power that it's referring to in, in 12, we can refer back to this, because it's the power that was also given to the beast, the one world government, which is Satan's power. So that's how we know that the false prophet will be getting his power from Satan. It's directly coming out of Scripture on that. Um, and then everything I else, everything else that I had is for um, this Iran news, uh, the uh, Yemen news. Um, I was going to bring up the thing about um, Christians are for Palestine, like they're with Palestine and the war and everything. Yeah, and I'm hearing a lot of that. Um, I've just in visiting, for some reason, there's just a pronouncement of people um, backing the Palestinian movement that consider themselves Christian. Um, you know, Revelation twelve fourteen tells us that that Satan is going to come down from heaven. He's going to be banished to the earth. It appears he's going to inhabit the body of he's going to possess the body of what we would know as the antichrist that's what it appears and he's going to make war against the saints and he's going to make war against the nation of israel so he's not taking any chances he's going after anybody that god considers his people but i do recall in genesis where god said i will make a covenant talking to abraham i'll make a covenant with thee and thy seed forever I don't recall forever ending with the Old Testament and where the New Testament picks up and goes, well, that was the end of that forever. Now we'll start a new forever. So it's still God's chosen people. Scripture tells us that he has blinded them temporarily. Blindness, death, in part, happened to the Jews until the fullness of the Gentiles be come in. But eventually, Scripture says that all of Israel shall be saved. And you can look that, just do a search. All of Israel shall be saved in the KJV. Um, and... But because um, God is going to bring all nations against Jerusalem to battle, and you see that in Zechariah 14. And my whole point to this is a lot of these prophecy scriptures that we look at that kind of give us an indication of the mindset of people in this time frame and, and the mindset of what's going on with the, the one world government and what Satan's goals are and, and the goals that you know everything we fight is a spiritual battle. So when you see a person or a leader going in the wrong direction, he, it's a spiritual battle. He's listening to the wrong spirits. Mm -hmm. And these spirits have been around a lot longer than 
the lifespan of a man. So you start back in the late 1800s for the United States, and you can see this push to turn this Titanic nation, you know, turn, turn the Titanic around. They've been turning it since the late um, 1800s. So if you look at all these prophecies of how the mindset of the majority of people are going to be, their anti-Semitism will come up again. Because Matthew 24, Jesus himself speaking, he says, Then will be hurt when the Antichrist stands in the temple of God claiming to be God. He says, Then shall be great tribulation such as never been before nor ever again shall be. Mm -hmm. So you think the Holocaust was bad. It's going to be worse than that. Um, as soon as the Antichrist stands in the newly built temple, which hasn't started yet, it'll, be, it'll have to be approved in the peace agreement that, that is not too far down the road, I wouldn't imagine. As soon as they start building that third temple, three and a half years in, the Antichrist is going to stand in the temple of God claiming to be God. Scripture calls that the abomination of desolation. Something about that, something about that move, that Antichrist, this world leader standing in the newly built Jewish temple, something about that draws the ire of the Palestinian people. And they flood across into what we call the West Bank, but it's biblical Judea. And, and Jesus said, And when you therefore shall see the abomination of desolation, the Antichrist standing in the temple, claiming to be God, then let them which be in Judea flee into the mountains, for then will be great tribulation such as never again, never been before nor ever again shall be. So he lays out this anti-Semitism. Well, that doesn't happen overnight. The, Satan is building on this like he's been turning just like he's been turning this country around over the last 100 110 years or longer but and we are now seeing that take root so if you're if you consider yourself christian and you're watching this video right now let me lay it out this way because there there appears to be a lot of christians that are against the jewish people and for the palestinian people in this war going on right now. And I get it. Some of the Palestinian people may be innocent. And as far as I can tell, the Israelis do the best they can. It's a war. It's not a good scenario. But they are doing the best they can to preserve human life on the civilian side and to only go after Hamas and those bad actors. They've even made a few mistakes and killed some of their own hostages. It's not a pretty situation. Um, nobody likes this, but if you're on the side of the Palestinians, just let me say it this way, and this is what I said earlier. This is how I put it simply. When Jesus Christ comes back, he plants his feet on the Mount of Olives. The Battle of Armageddon is heavily, is heavily in full swing, and the Jews are losing. The Israelis are losing, the Jewish people. Jesus Christ comes back and the true Christians come with him, and he plants his feet on the Mount of Olives and fights the battle of Armageddon on whose side? The nation of Israel. Well, if God comes back, whatever side he is going to be on, and he prophesies and tells us this, the, tells us this stuff, Scripture says, I tell you these things so that when they come to pass, you might believe. Uh, another Scripture also says, they that understand among the people shall instruct many. So let me say it this way. 
If I can tell you ahead of time the side that Jesus is going to be on, don't you want to be on that side? Because when he comes back and he's on the side of the, the Jewish people and you're over here on the side of the Palestinians, you're going to be like, oh, I got that one wrong. And it probably isn't going to go in your favor. In fact, at that point, you've probably been deceived enough that you've probably taken the mark of the beast. I hope not. But I'm, I'm just saying, let's back it up before that even happens. Jesus comes back on the side of the, of the Jewish, of the state of Israel and of Jewish people. His chosen people. I want to be on that side. I want to come back with him on that side. So, um, look, the, the term Palestinian never even existed until back in the day it was the, um, the Ottoman Empire owned that territory at the time. And in, in the war... The, they lost it, and it became the British Mandate. I don't remember the year on that, but it was the British Mandate, and I want to say it was in the late 1800s, maybe. And somehow the term got coined Palestine, but it was the, the Palestinian territory, but it was all of that entire region. It wasn't a state. It wasn't governed. It didn't have its own government. It was governed by um, the British Mandate. Whether you were Jewish, it didn't matter what your country of origin was. They just simply referred to everybody out there as a Palestinian people. When 1948, the Jews had gone through the Holocaust and the United Nations wanted to give Israel a land of their own. They offered this certain territory to Israel, which was only part of their promised land, and they offered the rest of it to um, the Arabs. The Arabs declined and the Jewish community accepted it, the Israelites. Instantly the next day they, the Muslims went to war with them. Well, that went on for a while, but Yasser Arafat came in charge of the Palestinian people, became their leader, I want to say in 1967, and he coined the phrase and made it a political thing in about 1967 which was a very ingenious move, I'll give him that, but he simply invented a Palestinian people that had never existed before. They were simply Jordanians for the most part that lived out there. They had Jordanian citizenships, they just had spilled over into this other territory. So there was no Palestinian people, quote unquote, prior to 1967. And it was an invention, very smart, like I said, from Yasser Arafat. So there's a little history lesson for you. If you're on the side of the Palestinians, you're not on the side that Jesus is going to come back on. I don't know any other way of putting it than that. Do you have anything else for me? No, sir. We are at war as we speak. I don't know if the White House has come out and spoke yet. I heard they were going to, just from a friend. I, I didn't see it anywhere else, but... Um, we don't know who's really running this ship of the United States government uh, as far as the White House is concerned. Um, we've gone to war with the Houthi rebels in Yemen, but they are backed by Iran. They are Iran's, one of their biggest counterparts. So we are, in essence, um, striking a lot of Iranian targets as we speak. That's going on right now. Um, I would look for it to go on throughout the night 
I'm not sure what tomorrow will bring. This came up by surprise. Um, I've been kind of in a texting frenzy for the past um, two or three hours over this. But the one thing that kind of came to mind um, was the Sixth Trumpet War. And I had a discussion with a friend of mine. Usually she's in here during our Bible study, Michelle. And um, I hadn't really gotten any further with it. But one thing that I noticed, and now it's sparking back up with this bombing going on that really affects our relationship with Iran, and, and we're, we're really at a type of war with Iran, if you will. So keep an eye on it. Really keep a close eye on it. Um, but I want to go back and revisit part of this prophecy of the Sixth Trumpet War that ends up killing a third of the human race, because that's one of the two things that's staring us in the face right now, and we don't know which will happen next. But something apart from that that I caught the other day, and for some reason I just hadn't, it had gone right over me as in a descriptor of the war itself, and maybe it is, but I'm going to skip down to verse 17, and this is Revelation 9. And thus I saw the horses in the vision, and them that sat on them, having breastplates of fire and of jacinth and brimstone, and the heads of the horses were as the heads of lions. Now, typically, and if you go back to Daniel 7 and the de description of nations there, if you go into Revelation 13, he talks about the one world government beast. It's got the mouth of the lion. You see those beast symbols in Daniel 7 brought into Revelation. Well, here we are in Revelation 9, and it appears, possibly, that... We know that the nation symbol that has a lion is Great Britain. And, uh, and out of their mouths issued fire and smoke and brimstone. By these three, fire, smoke, and brimstone, was the third part of men killed. I'm kind of wondering if it's not giving us a description of missiles or nuclear weapons going off, nuclear missiles, because you've got to kill a third of the human race. But, but the descriptor of the head's of the horses were as lions. So I am I need to study into that a little bit more. But I'm wondering if this isn't a heavy association with the nation of Great Britain. And it, and it may simply come down to we just have to wait and see. But I wanted to throw that out there because um, it, it caught my attention for some reason. I also wanted to let you know, you know, we're still in this part of earthquakes in diverse places that's spoken of in the early part of Matthew 24, like right around 789, verse 789. Uh, earthquakes in diverse places. We're seeing an uptick in earthquakes. Um, we just had, I'm trying to see, yesterday we had, uh, earlier today, a 6.4 earthquake in Afghanistan. We're seeing a lot of little ones, but the bigger ones I want to bring to you. We had one um, a few weeks ago. I was sitting in my chair and just <coughs> felt a little tremor. It, was, it popped up in Mount Vernon. Oh, yeah, there was one that people felt here, too. I barely felt it. It was like 10.30 at night. Yeah, because me and Michelle had just left whenever that happened. Hmm. Um, do you guys have anything? We are ending on an early note tonight. All right. Um, let me do a real quick deal. But I want to tell you, I want to urge you, I guess I should say, Keep an eye on it because this, um, keep an eye on this um, situation that's going on with 
Iran and Yemen and Yemen and Iran. The other thing I wanted to mention, Iran used to be called Persia. And as soon as I thought about that, I kind of my mind went back to Daniel 10 and I think verse 13, where it's Daniel had prayed, he had written all this stuff about the beasts and 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 a temple being built and um, a lot of this stuff he didn't really understand. Some of these were warring, like pro there were prophecies, and he didn't understand them. Um, seeing these futuristic wars and, and probably <coughs> nuclear weapons, things of that nature, and he didn't understand it. So he prayed to understand it. And I think he prayed, I want to say, for 21 days. And the angel appeared to him and told him, I heard you the first day, but... Let me see if it pops up here. I got it. It's it's Daniel ten thirteen. It is ten thirteen, okay. But the prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me one and twenty days. The, one and twenty. The days. prince. Read but, that part again. That very first part. But the prince of the kingdom of Persia. The prince of the kingdom of Persia. Withstood me one and twenty days. But lo, Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, and I remained there with the kings of Persia. So these warring angels, good and bad, fight. From I don't know if it's constantly or from time to time. And it appears from this description that nations have angels assigned to them or have, have taken a foothold in those nations. This one, obviously, in Persia at the time, was a bad angel because... The good angels were warring with him. It didn't give his name, right? It didn't give the... Okay. Well, so, Persia... Bible? Persia in the old... Up until just a few decades ago, what we now know as Iran was Persia. So he's talking about Iran there, yeah. what we call Iran. And then you, you hear all the time of the Medes and the Persians. That's the Persians. Next week's lesson, one of my favorites, the seven trumpets. And we're going to talk about that six trumpet war that's coming up. And um, we're going to cover them all. We're going to see where we stand uh, as far as the trumpets are concerned. We haven't moved any further forward, thank God, from when Urban gave these lessons in about 2010 to today. And we've, we'll, we will convince you, we will, with Scripture, convince you with facts that have happened and with Scripture that we are through five of the trumpets and the sixth one is coming up. So that may be something a little different than what you're used to hearing. Um, but stick with us on this one. This is a fantastic lesson. And we will see you all next Thursday, right? Thursday. Mm -hmm. Thursday. End the video.